Hey, Austin Oaks Church family and all of those guests who are watching this sermon online, this service, we are glad that you are with us. We are honored that you are with us. Thank you so much for allowing us into your home, into your cars, on your walks, during your runs, or wherever you are watching this. Some of you are in your PJs still. That's awesome. In fact, that might be one of the greatest obstacles to ever coming back again to Sunday is you just don't want to change anymore. But nonetheless, Thank you so much for allowing us to bring to you the Word of God this morning and to worship together. Um, our heartbeat here at Austin Oaks Church is to be simply about Jesus because we believe that when you encounter Him, it changes everything. And that's why we do all that we can as a church to help people meet, know, and follow Jesus. That's our heartbeat. So if you're checking us out or you're a guest visiting with us this morning, I want you to know that, that we strive to be simply all about Jesus. Now, as I was prepping for excuse me, this morning's message, I was reflecting a little bit on something that happened a few weeks ago that was pretty momentous in my life and in the life of our family. Three or two weeks ago or so was our oldest daughter's 12th birthday. And I had no idea how many emotions would start to stir inside of me. Like, I'm not typically the type of guy that like goes through a lot of different emotions, but that week leading up to her birthday, I was feeling all sorts of things. Like she's, she's my firstborn, she's my sweet little girl. And I remember all of these precious moments that we had. And that's what I started doing. I was going down memory lane and I was thinking through and even looked at some of the pictures of like where she would just nap right on my chest when I would get home from work. I mean, these things are so precious and they're just etched on my heart. All these sorts of times when it was just so beautiful and so innocent, but as I was reflecting and going down memory lane, I also started to have these other memories that weren't so sweet or so pleasant because to be honest, not every moment in babyhood is precious. I'm sorry. I'm just not that guy that sees every single moment as precious. Go ahead. Judge me in the moment at that time. They weren't precious looking back. Of course, right? Looking back, oh, everything was so precious. I treasured every moment, but in the moment, no. And I sort of had some of like, you know, some stress response as I was remembering some of these things, because quite frankly, babyhood, the season of having a baby is just really difficult because they are so selfish. They are so needy and they don't mean to be. It's just that you got to feed them. You got to clothe them. They always want to be held. You always have to rock them, right? They always want these things in like, the hardest, as I was thinking about Cora specifically, was feeding her. At least that's my recollection. My wife may disagree, but in my humble opinion, she was the hardest one to feed. Oh my goodness. She, and, and to be honest with you now as I'm thinking about this, I can't blame her. It was probably my fault because I was a, a new dad. I had no idea how to do this. And I remember specifically one time, um, as she was kind of transitioning out of just milk and moving into foods, Carissa, my wife, sent me on an errand to go to the grocery store to get rice cereal. I had no idea what rice cereal was, right? Now that I know it's like that little powder, you put some of the milk in it and you stir it up. You want to know what I thought it was? I literally, bought, this is no joke, I literally bought a box of Rice Krispies. I took the Rice Krispies home, smashed it up, and gave it to her as her first food. So even though she was difficult to feed, it was probably my fault because I traumatized her. And there are other stories that I'm not going to share with you about that. But she would fight me tooth and nail. In, in fact, look at this picture. She is so cute. 
as you're looking at this picture, I'm pretty sure you're going, how is he complaining? Just look at her. It had to have been so precious to feed her and all this kind of stuff. No, 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 no. It was a fight. She, in every meal, made a massive mess. She would always hit the spoon out of my hand. She would spit it out. She would rub the food on her face, rub it all over her hair, smear it all over the high chair and, and all the foods all over the place. And then not only that, like I had to deceive her to make her think that the spoon was an airplane and get the food in her mouth, that we would do all sorts of things just to try to get the food in her mouth. It was a messy event that happened multiple times, day after day after day after day. She left no bib unstained. And those bibs, they were absolutely nasty. Now don't judge me. I, was, I remember thinking, I cannot wait for her to be able to feed herself. In fact, during that time, one of my friends whose kids were a little bit older was just bragging about how now their kids can get up in the morning and get cereal all by themselves. And he was so thrilled that him and his wife got to sleep in a little bit more. And quite honestly, I'm going to be frank with you, I wasn't happy for him. I wasn't celebrating with them. I was absolutely jealous of them. I share this to tell you that I call all of that season I call it the bib life. The bib life, metaphorically speaking, as I try to make this illustration connect to us, is where you literally want everything to revolve around you. Okay, babies get a free pass because they don't know any better. And as they grow up to be as sweet and as beautiful like my little princess Cora, they can go on and get cereal on their own, which is a sign of growth, a sign of maturity, now, obviously, I'm being tongue-in-cheek, but if I could be honest with you for a moment, many of us, myself included, still live, metaphorically speaking, like we have a bib on, okay? We live as if this thing, and I'm going to choke for a little bit, is on us, or it's about me. It's about my agenda, where we're self-centered, and at times, we'll get harsh if we don't get our way. We expect others to know what we need. And then, in fact, we want others to always meet our needs. And we might even throw a fit until that need is met. We'll put unrealistic expectations on other people and other groups. We will fight for our rights, even if that means we have to put others down, so on and so forth. It's the bib life. It's all about me. And I know some of you are laughing. I hope you're laughing. And I hope you don't take screenshots. I hope you're not creating memes. But feel free. I know this is going out into the world. I know what I'm doing. I'm doing this to show you just how ridiculous this is. It is a ridiculous illustration. It is absolutely ridiculous that I'm wearing this bib right now. But that's my point. To live a life that is more self-focused than other-focused to live a life where we are more concerned over our well-being than the body of Christ is absolutely ridiculous in light of the gospel. If God's love is so great, and if his salvation is so powerful, and if God has granted such reconciliation between us and him and between each other, then how could we live wearing the bib thinking that life is all about me? 
Serve me. Feed me. I will get my way. It's my agenda. Even though we won't go outright and say that, but we live and act that way as if this is the value that we uphold. If God grants us through the power of his Holy Spirit, which he will always say yes, we talked about that last week, if he grants us through the power of his Holy Spirit to know the love of Christ, the limitless love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, and if we begin to experience his love, how can we still live with this bib on? Especially that we are to be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. Listen, if we value God's love, and I hope you do, if we value God's love, then we ought to be shaped by God's love. If we value his love, then we should be shaped by his love. And the life that is shaped by God's love grows out of wearing the bib. It grows up, it matures, and eventually it chooses to wear the towel, which is a symbol of a servant, one who wants to wash the feet of others. It's a symbol of love. This is what our lives would be shaped like if we value God's love. And this is the corner that Paul takes in Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3. He does his beautiful theological work to show us the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. That while we were his enemies, while we were dead in our sins, while we were objects of his wrath, he came and made us alive. We did nothing. We were his enemies. And he so loved that he gave all. He became a servant. He emptied himself. He humbled himself for you. He was long-suffering. He was gentle. He was patient for you. And when we receive his grace through faith, we're made alive. But not only that, he reconciled a fractured humanity through his body. Like this is what Paul did. He's like, listen, if this is true, which it is, and if you have received it, this is now how you should live. I said it last week, and I want to say it again as a reminder. Revelation leads to worship, okay? Revelation, things, truth that God reveals to us leads to worship, an appropriate response of truth and spirit. Worship leads to ethics. Worship leads to behavior. Belief determines behavior. Belief comes as a result of hearing what God has revealed in his word. We love because he first loved. God acts first, we respond. So how we live ought to be in response to his grace. So if you have a Bible with you, you or you can just follow along on the screen here, it'll, we'll have the verses for you. Turn to Ephesians chapter four. Ephesians chapter four, we're gonna go through, hopefully, the first 16 verses. So let's start with Ephesians four, verse one. I therefore... This, therefore, is in reference to what we just talked about, chapters 1, 2, and 3. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This verse sets the stage for the rest of the letter. 
Paul is reminding them again that he's a prisoner for the Lord. Not only is he a prisoner of Christ Jesus because the love of Christ has captivated him. He has linked himself. He's a slave of Christ because the love of Christ has taken all of him. He's like, yes, I'm choosing to be a captive to Jesus. But also, literally speaking, he is a prisoner because of Christ. His passion for the gospel has landed him in prison. So he reminds them, he's like, listen, the gospel is everything to me. And so he says this word, and I want you to notice this word. I urge you. This word urge is so strong. We don't have the right English word to convey the importance and the strength of this word. He's pleading with them, right? He's, he's almost like begging with them. He's making the strongest appeal that he can possibly make on the heels of the love of Christ. I'm urging you, church, walk in a manner of the calling. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. There are four words here that I want you to focus on. The words walk, worthy, calling, and called. I'm urging you to walk. This is a word that Paul's going to use five times in chapters four, five, and six. And this word walk represents how you live, represents your behavior, represents what you value. It represents your ethics. I urge you to walk in a manner that's worthy. Again, our English vocabulary can't do this word justice. In the Greek, the word is axial, which is where we get the word axiom. This idea of in a manner that's worthy, axiom gives us this idea of saying, Make sure that your walk is of equal weight to the calling. What's the calling? It's the gospel. So if I had a, um, a balance scale, and if we were right here, the gospel comes, right? It, it's weighty. What Paul is saying is, live your lives in such a way that is equal, so that your, the way you live balances out. It is worthy. It is of equal weight to the gospel. You can just stop right there. And you can look at your life and ask all sorts of questions. I urge you to walk in a manner that is worthy of, of equal weight to the gospel, of the calling, right? Which is the gospel, which is what we talked about, to which you've been called. In other words, he called you. He made the first move. He loved first. He extended grace first. While we were his enemies, while we were dead in our sins, helpless and hopeless on our own. And it was by his grace that we were saved and he gave us the gift of faith when we say yes. I urge you to walk, to live in a manner that's worthy of equal way to the gospel which he has called you, to which he has pursued. He initiated. And he's speaking in light of this boundless, limitless love of Jesus that surpasses knowledge. He is saying to the church, I'm begging you, I'm pleading with you, church, not just one person, but every single person who's experienced the grace of God to live in a way that is equal to the new life that he has given us. If we get to know the love of Christ, make sure that that love shapes how you live 
Jesus, when he came on this earth, he did not live a bib life. He did not put this on and expect the world to revolve around him. In fact, scriptures even tell us, right, that it says that he came to serve, not to be served. And if you look at Philippians chapter 2, it tells us that he emptied himself. He humbled himself. Even though he was God, he didn't consider that anything worth like trying to pursue that or let other people know. And he didn't flaunt his power. No, he, he came and he took on the role of a servant. He embraced the towel to show love. In John 13, he loved his own to the full extent. And you know what he did? He washed their feet. He took the role of a servant. In light of the gospel, how could we live with the bib on? It is absolutely ridiculous. So church, live your life. Live your life in a way that's equal to the love that you have received. If you value God's love, you will be shaped then by God's love. How? How then do we live a life that is worthy, that is of equal weight of the gospel. Verses two and three start to show us. Verse two, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. How do you live a life that is worthy, that is of equal weight to the gospel? Paul characterizes it in five qualities or five virtues, and I want to be crystal clear. Our culture, our society does not teach, does not embody these values. They say they do, but the actions of our culture and society at large show truly what we value. And what we truly value is self, individualism. It's the bib life. These five qualities, these virtues, they're embodied in Jesus. They are part of who God is. They are part of how he loves us. And so we ought to be shaped by them, meaning we ought to be growing in them individually and collectively as God's people. Take the bib off and put on the towel. These five qualities are absolutely essential in order to maintain the unity through the Spirit, in the bond of peace. So we are exhorted to walk, okay? We are exhorted to live in all humility. Humility was an absolutely despised virtue in the ancient world. It was never used in the context of approval. It wasn't anything that people aspired to. And it truly wasn't until Jesus came that we actually saw a true glimpse of what humility is. It's lowliness of mind, it's having a humble recognition of the value and worth of other people over yourself. It leads to emptying yourself so that you can become a servant of other people. Humility is absolutely essential to unity because pride lurks behind all division, all dissension. Pride is there. Humility is the opposite of pride. Humility is renounces the bib so in order to walk in humility 
you must renounce self-centeredness. And you can only do that through the gospel. In order to walk in humility, you have to renounce self-centeredness. We're exhorted to not only walk in all humility, but in gentleness. This is not a word for the timid or the faint at heart, but it's really a word for the courageous. It's a strong word. To be gentle is not to be weak. It's actually to be strong because it's a word that paints a picture of the one who has this strength, who has this self-control, right? Who's able to control selfish urges. It's strength under control. Gentleness is a virtue that lays down one's personal rights for the sake of other people. That's what gentleness is. And Jesus was described as gentle in heart. He has all of the strength. He is omnipotent. He has all the power, right? He could have retaliated when people wronged him, when people accused him, when people spat on him, when people, you know, just like be, abandoned him. He, he could have retaliated at any moment. In fact, he even said that to, to Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's like, could I not call on 10,000 angels to deal with this? He absolutely could have. He was gentle. He could have asserted his rights at any moment and it would have been right for him to do so because he's God. But he didn't use his power. He didn't flaunt his strength, but he used his power and his strength to be under control so that he could forgive, so that he could serve and to give his life as a ransom for the whole world. So in order to walk in gentleness, you have to renounce harshness. You have to renounce harshness and violence. You have to. Because otherwise you can't walk in gentleness. It's strength under control. To live a life that is worthy of equal weight to the calling that you've been called, walk in all humility, walk in gentleness, but also walk in patience. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't like this one. I'm not a patient person. You know where this shows up the most? When I'm driving. I have probably the worst road rage ever. I'm, I'm a very impatient person. Everything should have been done now. I struggle with this. I want things to be around my time, my agenda, my expectations, my desires. I'm short with people when I'm not focused on Jesus. Patience is essential. This is the ability to be long suffering not just momentary suffering not just like hey i'm with you in this moment but it's long suffering to be able to walk alongside dare i say aggravating people and frustrating circumstances situations this is how god is towards us he is patient he doesn't want any to suffer he is long suffering in fact if you look at first corinthians chapter 13 13 when it starts to describe what love is like Patience is the first descriptor of love. Love is patient. So if there's no patience in how we live, let's just be honest, there can be no uh, unity. So in order to walk in patience, you must renounce, okay? You must renounce the priority of your agenda and your desires. You must intentionally take this off and put this on. Walk in humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. 
This is like, I just want to keep this one simple. Bearing with one another means you're going to value people the way that God values people. You're going to see people the way that God sees people. And if you don't know how God sees people, read the Gospels. Read John chapter 3. If you don't know how God sees people, I'd encourage you to do that. Bearing with one another means we're going to see people the way that God sees people. And you know what that also means? It means that we're going to be mutually tolerant of each other. Tolerant has become an ugly word. Like, like Christians have this adverse reaction to tolerance. It's like, I can't be tolerant of that because if I tolerate the person, that means I'm going to tolerate the activity. No, it's like we, we really do got to somehow separate that. We need to see people. Jesus saw people. He knew the heart was lost and the only remedy to the heart was for him to die and conquer death and give us the spirit, right? So we should tolerate people. He tolerated us, and quite frankly, probably still does. Tolerating is still love. It doesn't mean if you love the person that you're going to be accepting of all of the things. It just means you're going to be barren with them. It means you're going to be patient with them. It means you're going to be gentle with them. It means you're going to be humble. And you're going to do it in love. In love. The crown and the sum of all of the qualities Love is not a feeling. It's not an emotion. Listen, love is a conscious act of the will. Love seeks constructively the good of other people and the good of the community. In order to bear with one another, you have to renounce your idealistic expectations of others and other groups. In order to walk in love, listen now, in order to walk in love, you must renounce indifference and passivity. Paul's urging the church, which includes us, to walk or to live, behave in a manner that is worthy, in a manner that is of equal weight to the calling, to the gospel of which you've been called. And you're going to do this by going after humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, all of it in love. We call this sermon series Awake, O Sleeper, because I think it's time for some of us, again, to embrace the, the, the values of a church. It's time for us to embrace who we are as a church and what God has called us to be as a church, to realize what Christianity looks like how are we are to live as believers, especially today in the world we live, in the society that we live, the times that we are facing. We need to come back again to understanding how we are to live because of the gospel. No society, please hear me. And this is why putting all of your eggs in the basket of politics as a believer is absolutely frustrating it causes more issues than it does benefits. No society, no culture, no political system, no business, no education platform can champion these qualities. Here's why. As we saw in Ephesians chapter 2, we have a problem. We are not inherently good. The society is not inherently good. 
We are all objects of God's wrath. We are sinful by nature. We are all prone to self-centeredness. We don't have the power in and of ourselves to change that. We are inherently evil. We don't like that message. We really, really don't. And the only solution we have to this is the gospel. So church, this is why I said it's absolutely ridiculous for us to be living this bib life. If we say we value God's love, this, this is not the life we should be living. Where it's about me and my rights and my platform and me, 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 me. No, no, absolutely not. Christianity is God-directed. It's about Him. It's from Him. It's empowered by Him. Christianity is defined by Jesus. Walk as He walked. And here's the other part. I mean, we know those two. Christianity is also other-focused. Receive one another. Think about one another. Serve one another. Love one another. Build each other up. Bear with one another. Give to one another. Submit to one another. Encourage one another. Why? Because we are united. Look at verse 3. Eager, that's another word, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This word eager is so beautiful. This word eager tells us, like, listen, above all of your efforts, spare no effort. Never stop pursuing this. Do it with great urgency. Do it with great passion. Do it with all of your mind, all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your strength. Be eager to maintain the spirit of the unity, right? That he's given us in the bond of peace. Now, I don't mean to be like, you know, maybe too harsh, but I, I, this week as I was writing this, I was thinking about this. I was like, I, I, I couldn't help myself comparing this exhortation to how we are dealing with the pandemic. I mean, we are extremely eager, generally speaking. We are gen like very eager to slowing the pandemic down, right? We have social protocols, social requirements. We have metrics, we have dashboards, and there's even accountability. We're very eager to making sure that our bodies are healthy. Like, like that's real. And listen, I'm not downplaying the virus. Please do not hear that. I'm not suggesting we shouldn't take it serious or that we shouldn't be eager. Yes, I hope the way that we've been doing church suggests that we are. You've got to be eager, absolutely. But let's just be honest for a moment. We aren't as eager in going after unity in the body of Christ as we are in other areas. And here's my hunch. And my hunch is after a personal reflection. I think we like to pretend. I think we like to pretend that we wear the towel. We talk the game. We know the game. We sing about it. But I think we like to pretend it because the reality is we really like the bib. We 
We are being exhorted to be peacemakers. Every believer, every single person, all who experience the love of Christ. We are to pursue reconciliation. We are to embrace honesty. We are to be willing to risk the pain of being misunderstood as we go after unity. We are willing to risk the pain as people are going to walk on us as we walk in all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, which is oftentimes the pushback I get. Well, I don't want to be walked on. Is that okay? I look at Jesus. He's our exemplar. He's our model. And here Paul goes on. He's like, listen, if you want to know how important unity is, verse 4, there's one body, one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. He says one seven times. And every single time he says the word one, it's a reference to the Trinity and our experience to the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, three in one. They're completely united. You cannot rip them apart. There is no disunity within the Trinity. You cannot fracture the Trinity. There's one body because there is one spirit. And the body is the church. It's all people. It's all ethnicities. It's all economic statuses. It's all cultural distinctions, right? Where he says he took Jew and Gentile and he made one new humanity. In other words, he tore down the wall of hostility. He's creating a new community called the church. That's one reason why we're united. There's one hope. There's one faith and one baptism because we have one Lord and that Lord is Jesus. It is Jesus whom we believe. It is Jesus into whom we have been baptized. In other words, the death we died, right? We, we died to Christ, and now the life we live, we live for him. It's his life. That's the baptism. It is Jesus in whom we wait for with great expectant hope. There's one God and Father of all, which reminds us that there's one family. So here's the deal. Just as the Trinity is united and can't be divided, the church, hear this, the church is united and cannot be divided. It's his body. If the Trinity can't be divided, the church can't be divided. Now, I know that some of you are probably thinking to yourself, how can you say that? We can't create unity nor destroy it, but we are to maintain it. Like when I look at the church, I see a lot of issues. I see disunity. I see fighting. I see multiple denominations that were formed because of infighting. I see churches at odds within themselves and within the world at large due to political stuff, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So how can you say that the church cannot be divided? Yeah, you're absolutely right. It is a paradox. But let me try to explain it this way with a really bad illustration. Let's create a family, and let's say their name is Periwinkle. I have no idea why I said that. Partly because it was the first one that came to mind, and I know I need your attention back. So now that I have your attention, welcome back. Let's think about this, okay? Let's just say Fred and Tina get married. Now they are the Periwinkles. They are a family. And in God's eyes, they are no longer two. They are one. 
And I believe what God says to be true. So they are one. They're one blood. That marriage means they are united. Absolutely. Completely united. And there's nothing that can be done. Okay? Fred and Tina eventually have two kids. And let's call these two kids, I don't know, Charlie and Wilma. Again, just came to my head. No rhyme or reason. The family grew. They're united by one blood. And there's nothing that they can do to change that. Charlie and Wilma had no choice as to what family they're going to be part of. They are part of the Periwinkle family. That means they are united. It's one family, one body, right? So nothing below the surface. They are absolutely united. So let's just say over time, Fred and Tina, they get a divorce. And so it seems that they're divided, right? But scripturally speaking, we know that they're not. They're still one. Okay, below the surface, they are still one. But what we see on the surface is a fractured family, a divided family. They're still one, but because they got divorced for whatever reason, tells us that there wasn't a lot of maintaining the unity at that point. So let's just say then Charlie and Wilma get estranged from mom and dad and Charlie has an issue with dad. He hasn't talked to him in years and Wilma is mad at Charlie and won't talk to Charlie, can't be in the same room with him. And you look at this family and go, wow, this is a busted up, fractured family. Yes, on the surface, but below the surface, they are still one blood. They are still one family. That's the idea here. Below the surface, the church is united. That will never change. But above the surface... We can look fractured, and that's on us. And that's why Paul says, be eager to maintain the unity. Uh, now, hear me, okay? When we fail to maintain the unity in the church, our witness to the world around us is comical. It just is. When we fail to maintain this unity, our message to the world around us, the culture and society like looks at us and you go, oh, I'm going to take you serious. Unity and mission go hand in hand. You want to know why? Because unity is part and parcel of the gospel. It's a byproduct of the gospel. If we don't do all that we can to maintain it, it tells other people, the world around us, what we truly think about God. It tells people what we truly think about the gospel if we're not willing to be eager to maintain the unity. There's one God, one Lord, one Father, one Spirit. But if we're willing to not care about unity, we're choosing this. That we make church about us. If we value God's love, we will be shaped by God's love. God is united and His church is united. So we are to do all that we can to maintain this unity. And that's why we are to walk in such a way that is worthy of equal weight, of equal value to the gospel that has saved us. Revelation leads to worship. Worship leads to ethics. Belief determines behavior. Last week we said the problem isn't that we don't love God enough. I'm going to add something onto this. The problem isn't that we don't love God enough or others. The problem is we just don't know how much God loves us. If we knew how much God loves us, we would value his love and then we would be shaped by his love and then we would strive to take the bib off and to embrace the towel and to walk in a way that is worthy. And the rest of this chapter, he goes on and he gives all of these examples 
how God has graced or gifted every single believer in the family. He's given every single believer a gift, a responsibility to play a role within the church, within the family, to serve the family and the world at large. There are no bench warmers in church. We are all to walk in a way that is worthy. We are all to be eager to maintain the unity. And we do that by serving with a great diversity of talents and gifts and passions. It's not just the paid pastoral staff. It's every believer. And then he ends very clearly in verse 13 through 16. He ends sharing that we are to attain to the unity and this word attain basically means you grow up, you mature, you do all that you can until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we would no longer be children who have to wear the bib, the infant stage, tossed back and forth by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in what? In love. We grow by truth in love. Our English doesn't have the word for it, but it's truthing in love. It's not just knowing the truth. It's not just being able to memorize a truth. It's not just being able to recite a truth or expound a truth or write a paper on a truth or a book on a truth and do a Bible study on the truth. Truthing. It's a weird word. We just don't have it in our English. It means you do the truth. You act the truth. You speak the truth in love. You run after truth. You pursue honesty. You don't avoid it. And if we were honest, when we do avoid it, it's either because of pride or laziness. Pride because um, we would rather have a better picture of ourselves or the world around us. Laziness because we know it requires work and discomfort. But we are to speak the truth in love. We are to act on the truth. If Jesus has created peace and if he has given us unity, church, hear me. Unity has to be part of our self-understanding. We are one with people and we are one with Jesus like it or not. The exercise of our faith has to be an exercise of unity. It has to be. It's what the gospel has achieved. And unity isn't the goal. We're not going after this for unity's sake. Jesus is the goal. We are to grow into him and to know him, to experience him, to share him. The problem isn't that we don't love God enough or that we don't love others enough. The problem is we don't know just how much God loves us. And that's why we said, in light of what Paul said in his prayer, pray, 
ask the Holy Spirit to strengthen you on the inside to be able to know the height, the depth, the width, and the length of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, to be rooted and grounded in his love. Because when you are rooted and grounded in his love, the bib is off. You will take it off and you're going to grow into maturity. And that growth becomes a life that is lived in a way that is equal to the gospel, represented by serving and loving others well. Awake, O sleeper. Church, it's time for us to love the way God loves. It's time for us to come back to our first love, to not abandon it. It's time for us to be shaped again by the love of Christ instead of anything else around us. We should really value his love above all else. And if we do, the reality is it will be expressed in how we live. So my ask for you this morning, this afternoon, this evening, whenever you watch, is to simply ask the Holy Spirit to show you which life are you living? Which one are you pursuing? Which one do you value more? The bib life or the life that resembles a servant? Let him show you. Let him convict you if need be and realize that it's his grace. Church, we need to rise up. We need to be eager to maintain the unity because when we are united, when we pursue this, when we live lives that are worthy of the gospel, our mission, our witness, our influence is effective. Make no mistake of it. Father, I thank you for your word that is honest, it's true, it cuts to the core. So Lord, I just pray for my friends Lord, I ask that your spirit would speak to them. Show them the areas in their lives where maybe they prefer the bib over the towel. And Lord, by your love, help them to see your love as the standard. Let your love convict them, not guilt them, not shame them, but to be motivated and compelled and stirred up by your love. So Holy Spirit, we pray again that you would strengthen us on the inside to help us grasp your love. Root us in your love and ground us in your love for we know that is the only way where we can live these lives that are worthy of the gospel. So Lord, we say yes to you. We open our hands to you and we say, Lord, would you be made known in and through us as a church in this time, in our communities, in the city of Austin. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Blessings, church.